uh, <laughs> we're in here because if you're following my tweet timelines yesterday, I went to do this upstairs in my office in the normal spot and I got this hum, like this really, really annoying hum in the speakers. And it was, it was very strange because I'm trying to figure out like, what did I do to make the hum <laughs> appear? You know how like you try and work back all the things that you've done to your machine or environment, whatever it is, since it last worked. And the only thing I could think of is I installed the Photoshop beta because I wanted to try this generative fill. If you've not seen Facebook generative fill, g'day Wayne, <laughs> at least I can see stuff popping on my phone. If you've not tried or seen Facebook generative fill, it looks super cool because it's like, it's all AI, which is all the rage these days. But you select part of the photo and then you just type what you want there. It's like, you know, select a mountain. I would like a unicorn here. And it just makes the unicorn appear. And I got very excited about this. Or things like removing people as well. Like I, I grabbed some of my photos. It's like, well, there's three of us in this photo. Not like touching. Put a little select box around the person you want removed. And just uh, go to generative fill and bam, the, like they're gone. And if you select the shadow, then the shadow's gone as well. It's, it's super, super cool. Anyway, that was the only thing that I could think of that I had done to my machine since it last worked. So I was like, okay, uninstall Photoshop. No, nope, still doesn't work. And, and what, what I was actually finding, this is in a little video that I put on the Twitters, is that as soon as I turned the camera on, I'd get hum, which was, uh, which was not great. Now, uh, Brendan, you said that's a soft image. Do, do you mean like a cool image or is there something wrong? <laughs> I'm gonna have nothing more wrong. <laughs> Please clarify. Anyway, I've not been able to nail it down and I have tried like, obviously there's some sort of ground loop or feedback or something going on. So I've tried plugging everything into the same circuit, uh, using different cables, plugging into different USB slots. I think where I'm at next is trying to have better isolation between probably the cables that run to the, um, to the, to the mic and elsewhere. Uh, yeah, Wayne, I'm on my iPhone with the little lapel. As far as I can see, it looks fine. You know what I can do, actually? I can go to my iPad here, which has got the thing playing. Yeah, it's a lot of headspace, isn't there? <laughs> now I can see. I'll talk about the garage in a moment. It wasn't the plan to do it here. This is the point. Like I was going to do everything from up in my office, we had everything laid out. I was going to do it yesterday morning instead of like after 11 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday of, of all times, which is not great. But part of the reason I thought I'd end up doing it with the mobile setup is we are going to go away this coming week. We're going to go to Thailand for a holiday. So uh, I'm going to be fully mobile Friday and the Friday after going to Bangkok, doing the Bangkok stuff, going to a couple of islands and doing like the laying around the pool stuff. So it'll be fully mobile. So I was like, look, it doesn't work upstairs. I need to get all this stuff working anyway. It appears to work from what I can tell <laughs> from your comments there, guys. I'm just going back to look at the, the actual chat messages here on the iPad. Uh, I reckon that picture looks all okay. I've got really good natural light just here. Um, and then I thought, well, I've been talking about the garage so much as well. I might as well come down to the garage. The, the GTR is not here at the moment because that's getting tuned. So I had space. That looks really cool. <laughs> the bar's there. So this is actually a cool space. It's probably just a little bit echoey. It's the only problem. I was going to do it later today, but then I don't have the natural light. So the natural light is, uh, actually comes up pretty well. 
Anyway, looking at the comments here, uh, so yeah, streaming on iPhone. Ensure power bricks are away from audio cables. Yeah, so that's... But I didn't change anything. <laughs> this is what bothers me. But yes, I, I need to just try uh, rerouting cables, which is painful because I've got this massive freaking desk there and I've really tried hard to like, my cable management is beautiful at the moment. But yes, some cables do run past power bricks. We'll get to that. Uh, instructions on clear audio cables, now wrapping every power brick possible. Chris is there. Hey Troy, hoping to hear more about your locks. Did you end up getting home key figured out? I've been working with the AL, BLE and Z-Wave devices for the past few years. Right, so I'll come back and talk about that in a moment. Let me, uh, let me make sure that I do stay on track a little bit as well. What's on my normal list? Sponsors. <laughs> Let's talk about sponsor. I think I could do the sponsor off by heart now because it, it is Collide and Collide has been a sponsor many, many times throughout this year and last year as well. And you will see them uh, for many months to come. You will see some other sponsors as well, but Collide has certainly got the absolute lion's share of Triumph.com sponsorship. Collide can get your cross-platform fleet to 100% compliance, zero trust for Okta. Want to see for yourself, go and book a demo. And as I said many times before, I think getting demos uh, and trials from sponsors is fantastic. So you can go and see what they actually do. Collide ensures that if a device isn't secure, it can't access your apps. It's zero trust. Uh, we should talk about that when I get to door locks in just a moment about zero trust things on your network. Designed for Okta works on Mac, Windows, Linux, iOS, and Android, which is, there's nothing left <laughs> after that. It's, that is everything. Go and watch the on-demand demo. Please go and check Collide out. A big thanks to them for helping me do what I do. Uh, even if I do make some little mistakes along the way, with my ground hum and whatever else. Ground noise, ground fear. Ah, the buzzing sound. I'm just so frustrated by it. Before I get into the door locks, uh, last week I was talking about domain searches and the fact that there's now a dashboard, you can see all your domains, you can see how often they've been in data breaches and everything. Uh, and I'll talk about some of the feedback from the, uh, <laughs> not the noisy feedback in the speakers, some of the feedback about the, the proposed pricing and everything as well. But I guess the first thing is, everything has worked fine, which is awesome. Like I, I'm sitting there like watching the Azure App Insights and all the monitoring and everything. I have not had errors. Uh, I've not had timeouts now that everything's sitting there on functions, which is great. There certainly are domains that will time out. I mean, there has to be a point at which you just simply can't pull down, let's say gmail.com. And of course, many, many beneath there as well. But my very gut feel round numbers is domains of up to several million breached addresses. And roughly speaking, I'm finding about one in five addresses on a domain is breached. So, you know, we're talking about like at least 10 million plus email addresses on a domain, which as far as I know, is every actual corporate entity. <laughs> and all we're left with then is like mail providers and ISPs and things like that. So I think we've, we've nailed the domain search bit there. Now on the pricing, and the way I'm going to have to structure this commercially, and I said last week, look, there'll be some sort of tiers, right? Where it's like, look, I want to make sure there's, there's a free tier that covers the lion's share of, of, of domains. Uh, if you have troyhunt.com, well, first of all, good on you if you've got that. But if you have something similar to troyhunt.com, you shouldn't be in a position where you've got to pay to do a domain search. Um, as they get larger and larger, and as you get into to more corporate entities, well, well, yes, I do feel comfortable with saying that you now need to contribute <laughs> to my cloud bills. And the trick, of course, is just gonna be where those points are. 
the, the, the gut feel that I'm, I'm getting to at the moment is that the tiers for the public API key are, are pretty good. They're pretty close in terms of their, their pricing. Uh, and, and what I like about it is that the, the entry level pricing at the moment is like $3.50. And I think for all reasonable intents and purposes, for most parts of the world that actually use this service, that rounds to basically nothing. And, and what I mean, like I don't want to trivialize <laughs> $3.50, but it is an amount of money which is, is a cup of coffee. If I go down to my local, I think in Australian, we pay $5 something Oz at the moment for a large latte. So if you're managing to search larger domains for the cost of a latte per month, I'm okay with that. I know some people will be unhappy, but some people are always going to be unhappy. I think the public API key, the, the pricing there on the other tiers, I can't remember what it is, it's like 15 bucks and 50 bucks and 100 bucks or something like that uh, per month. I, I feel that they're pretty, they're pretty good. People seem to be happy with those as exactly the distribution that you would expect. Most of them are on the lower ones and very few are on the higher ones. That seems like the right amount of money. It's just then a matter of where are the segments for the number of breached accounts in a domain. Uh, and that's something that I can figure out in a pretty evidence-based way because I've got a list of all the domains and the volume of breached addresses that appear on them. So that's something I'm still working through. Now the problem is working it out is one thing, but then I've got to actually go and write the code. Um, and I have been very, very distracted by all the garage stuff, all the kitchen stuff, all the other tradies coming and going. I, I had an altercation <laughs> yesterday with a tradie. I'm not going to go into too much detail on it, but someone who did something that they, they really shouldn't have done, and I, I, I told them quite directly that they shouldn't have done that. And they were not, they were not pleased, uh, and they made... They made some claims about things I'd said. And you know, the great thing about having an argument with a tradie in your house under your security cameras is that everything, including the one that's just there, everything is recorded. Uh, now, before you lose your minds about it, in Australia, in this state, you can do that. You can have security cameras in your house uh, and even pointing into the bits and pieces outside of your house if there's no reasonable expectation of privacy there, yada, yada, yada. So anyway, it was nice to have the ubiquity cameras yesterday. Bunch of my time has been blown doing that. I need to now find time to actually implement the, the controls around the size of the domains and then obviously do the whole Stripe thing and the payment bit. And I'd, originally I was hoping to get it done before I went away on this holiday on Thursday coming, but that's not, I threw that idea out because you don't want to ship code right before you go on holidays. And there's going to be support and all sorts of stuff. I'd hope to actually get a lot of it built, but I don't know if that's going to happen now either. So I'm still hoping July is a launch, but I feel like it's going to be pushing to later in July. Um, when I was writing the notes, assuming that I was going to do this upstairs, I mentioned the latitude breach. Now, for those of you not from Australia, latitude is one of the big breaches that we've had in Australia in the last last nine months because Optus was September and then Medibank I think was October, November and then Latitude was earlier this year, Latitude Financial. Latitude Financial has got a really, really long tail because this is a financial institution that provides services to 
uh, all of these other organizations. So a, a good example is if you were to go and buy something from uh, a major retailer here, I think for example, Harvey Norman, uh, for those of you from this part of the world, uses Latitude if people want to buy things on credit. It's like you want to go and buy that new washing machine for argument's sake, you don't have the cash, you have a repayment schedule, they use Latitude Financial uh, as, as the backer for that. So lots of people are in the Latitude Financial breach without ever having heard of Latitude. My parents were in the Latitude Financial breach because I think about seven years ago, they went to Europe and they got a credit card which had better exchange rates for when they were there. Now, I said a long tail. Someone else was also in the latitude breach that didn't expect it, <laughs> and that's me. So I see my parents on the, during the week, and mum's like, look, I hate to tell you this, but you've been pwned. It's like literally my mum handing me a letter from Latitude Financial. Now, I need to go back and figure it out exactly, but the fact that it was addressed to my parents, where I have not lived since the 90s, is a bit of a giveaway. I think it must have been some car finance I had or some other business finance or, or something that I had in the 90s. So like possibly 25 years later, at least 23 years later, my data is still there. Now, I'm gonna go to Latitude and, and ask them for some details and we'll see what we find out. But I've got like a two page double-sided printed letter saying that a bunch of my info was exposed in the Latitude reach. So, Yay me, I guess. <laughs> I just find that fascinating, all of these years on. Uh, look at the comments that I was missing there. So Chris, we're gonna talk about the locks, we're definitely into that. Brendan says, I feel at this point, we can probably just say, thanks Clyde, as we pop in the chat. Please do say thanks Clyde, that would be most appreciated. Um, yeah, and uh, yes, the humming has been driving me a bit crazy. Brendan, if I'm completely honest about all that. All right, so, uh, Peter Zerm, always amazed that companies treat old data like latitude to be an asset versus a liability. Now, I love this saying. So when I was going to Congress in 2017, I, had, I wrote a blog post when I'm going to go to Congress, what should I say? And someone gave me that saying. They're like, organizations always think of data as an asset and they fail to think of it as a liability. I would, look, I, I doubt I'm gonna get many good answers from latitude because usually people don't get very good answers from companies after data reaches. But, I think that's a perfect example. Why did they still have this data of mine? Not just like several years after I was a customer, but two plus decades, that's just insane. So anyway, I'll, uh, I'll start asking questions and I'll put that on, uh, on at least the tweet stream and we'll talk about it here at some time. <laughs> talk about not getting any answers. Okay. What's on the list here? Home Assistant and SD cards. Now I tweeted during the week that, uh, in fact, I can always point to it now. So my server rack, <laughs> which is just there. The lights are not on on the server rack at the moment. Uh, I have a Home Assistant instance sitting in there. It drives so much stuff in this house. Everything from the lights in this garage that come on at the right time through to the lights in the bar, once that's actually finished. It's probably a little bokeh out in the background, but that's not quite done yet. We don't have the right switches and none of the shellies and things on. It drives a huge amount of stuff in this house. And it runs on a Raspberry Pi 4B. It has done that since day one, about three years ago. It has been running on a 16 gigabyte SD card, micro SD card. It has been running really, really stably. And then I wanna say probably about four or five weeks ago, every now and then it would just become unresponsive. 
and the only way I could resurrect it is to power cycle the port on the switch. So it's, it's running on PoE. I'd power cycle the port, it'd come back up, <clears throat> it'd run for a few days and it'd be fine. Now the, the problem is, as, as I become increasingly dependent on this service, when it goes offline, it really messes stuff up. So the, the thing it messed up the other day is we're trying to remotely unlock one of the doors. We'll come and talk about the door locks in a moment. And I, I couldn't do it because it was just not responding. And I, I'm doing a lot of that via HomeKit now, Apple HomeKit. And all that would happen is it would just be like, you know, door can't respond. <laughs> you know, there's no feedback. So I'm like trying to remote troubleshoot from wherever we were at the time to, to figure out what's going on. So it's becoming like critical infrastructure for the house to have Home Assistant up and running. Now, a bunch of people are like, don't run it on SD card. Uh, it's too unreliable. Run it on uh, an SSD and preferably like an NVMe SSD or something like that. And that's probably really good advice. <laughs> they were sort of like, you know, oh, you, you're bound to have problems with SD card. I really have not had problems until this. It has been so rock solid. So I had to sort of find an immediate term fix. So I went, okay, maybe the SD card is degrading. It's also only 16 gig. I have problems with capacity and everything. Went out, got, I think it was about 99 Aussie dollars. I got a 512 gig, g'day Richard, <laughs> Richard's there. I got a, there's a whiskey bar, Richard. I got a 512 gig uh, SSD that is meant to be a lot more resilient. It was one of the one of the ones that's meant to do higher reads and writes. Anyway, put that in, everything seemed fine until yesterday when it stopped again. So I need to find a longer term solution. I'm really tempted to get like a home assistant yellow. So they're the models that, that they build, uh, they build and ship pre-installed, Zigbee uh, card on the whole thing as well. It's got uh, the option for an NVMe drive. You can put both OS and data on NVMe. Like it's, it's the way to do things. And I think they're gonna be shipping those by the sound of it right about now or next month. So I'm just trying to find like a, a, a stop gap. Also, because I don't wanna go like rebuilding home assistant instances right before I go away. And I, it's probably easier than I think, but I feel nervous about changing hardware. So I thought, well, maybe it's the Pi. So should I just go and buy another Raspberry Pi? Like they're, they're cheap. I'll turn the other one into the, the computer for my sock, <laughs> which I'm building upstairs. Very hard to get a Raspberry Pi at the moment. Very, very hard to get one. So the only ones I could find that they could deliver before I go away were like, I think it was about $250 for a four gig Raspberry Pi 4, which is kind of nuts. So my working theory now is maybe it's PoE. So maybe there's not enough PoE power. Maybe it's a little bit unreliable from the switch. Ooh, I'm just trying to think, did it only begin after I changed switches? So what I could try is getting rid of the PoE power and just powering it off mains. Because I figure that's low impact, right? All I gotta do is like drag that out of the hole <laughs> over there, plug it into mains and then if it works, fantastic. If I'm still back in the same situation, at least I've ruled one thing out. So that's not too bad. So that's where I'm at with the Home Assistant thing. Uh, I did see some comments just here. I'm sort of jumping around between iPad and iPhone here around that. Uh, Rich is drinking some Irish whiskey. <laughs> Very good. Richard got a yellow with 16 gig CM4 and a terabyte of M2 on it. And that, that feels like the, the sweet spot, right? So Richard, did you... If they shipped those already? Because when I was looking online, there was something about shortage of supply of CM4s or 
something like that. So I need to go and need to go and jump on top of that. Chris says it's a nightmare to get a pie. Uh, is is this like tail end of tail end of COVID? I know it's still around, but tail end of the drama and supply and issues like that. I don't know. Richard says, hey, we're all rubber ducks. Chris, also, is your home assistant set up on your Pi running any special chips? Could you run it via dock on your Synology NAS? Look, I, I could. I could do other things. I even thought about, do I just get a NUC and I run it off a NUC or something like that and, like, put a, a more full-on computer? Um, I, I'm breaking it down into what are things I can do immediately, like today, that are very low friction, low chance of anything going wrong, might fix the problem, <laughs> but probably not the longer term. And then what is the longer term? And I, I don't really want to repurpose file servers for this. Uh, I, I, I do like the idea of dividing and conquering these things down and there's one single purpose for it. So I, I think the longer term solution is a yellow, very much the way um, the way Richard's done it here. And he says, I've just seen your comment here. Richard says, they shipped yellows without CM4s. I bought mine separately. Uh, and he says, you want USB ports for your home assistant server. Uh, yes, you definitely want USB ports. Well, yeah, I guess assuming if you want, at the moment I've got a Zigbee dongle. That's what runs off my home, my USB port. But I, I think one of the yellow models also had uh, a Zigbee chip on board. So yeah, Chris, it was, it was a good point. I thought about it. At least I can power cycle via PoE at the moment. So this was the other thing that got me thinking about it. So like I, could, I could roll PoE to just a mains power with the transformer. But if I do that, I can't just power cycle a port to resurrect it. So then I also need to get, and well, I've got lots of spare IoT switches, like for the power socket, to plug the mains into there. So at least if it becomes unresponsive, then I can power cycle the switch and bring the thing back up. Ah, Richard says yellow has Zigbee on board, but not Z-Wave. Okay, that's all I'm after. Um, I have not done the Z-Wave thing. I'll stuck with Zigbee. Uh, Chris says, totally understand the desire to have identical purpose device. The yellow looks nice. Okay, yellow, yellow is definitely the path forward here. So I think what I'll do is I'll... Uh, I'll I was going to say I'll move the car out of the way. I've actually got room. I will do like better photos and everything of all of the work we've done here once I feel it's properly done. But there's enough room to sort of pull that entire server rack out without hitting the car, which is important, uh, and get in behind it. There's a, a whole little little hole in there with all the things. So I'm going to drag that out, plug in the mains on a switch, which is IoT, so I can remotely power cycle it. And that, that might actually mostly fix my problem. I'm curious, uh, Richard or anyone else, for, for those of you that, that did run Home Assistant on just a normal Pi before with an SSD, other than reliability, do you see any performance difference going to like NVMe drives uh, or other SSD forms? It, am I going to see some other gain other than just hopefully not crashing as much? Let me know in the comments. I'm curious. Rich has never needed to power cycle his yellow. Yeah, well, that's... And look, I never needed to power cycle my Raspberry Pi either until <laughs> very recently. Um, but anyway, here we are. Okay. Next up, door locks. Right, so <laughs> where did we get to with door locks? <sighs> Without going back through the whole pain of the thing. Um, easy bit first, they look great. So I've got the IoT Yale Assure door locks. They are the Assure 2, the ones they don't sell in Australia. They do sell in the US. I'm not sure if they sell them anywhere else outside of the US or North America, as it may be. 
they look fantastic. They really, really sleek. Like particularly when you look at it from the outside, and it's just a very sleek keypad. The the keys are not lit up by default. It's just a very soft glow of a Yale logo. It looks really, really nice. Love the look of it. Entry by pin is pretty much exactly what you'd expect it to do. You like you touch the Yale lock, the keypad lights up. You enter your pin. Good to go. Uh, rock solid. No problems with that. It's the IoT bit which just became an absolute shit fight to get right. Now, without going back through the whole thing, segmentation of product lines in the US versus the rest of the world, the issuer lock there looks like, a, I don't know whether they're divesting a part of the company or what it is, but the, basically the app that drives that you can only get in the US app store now, even though they've obviously just cloned the app, which they then put in the Australian app store and I assume the other parts of the world, but you can't use that one to control the US one. It's, a, it's just a messy, messy, messy situation. Be that as it may, like what's it like when you get it up and running? Well, the Assure 2 ships with the Wi-Fi module. There are modules for Matter, which I believe is coming. It's one of the real reasons I wanted, uh, I wanted the version 2 of the lock. I believe there is also a Zigbee module. I don't know if that's out for Assure Lock 2 or not. It is for 1. It works on the Australian locks. It is not compatible with two, which is the US lock. So I've got two Zigbee dongles, which I paid, or Zigbee dongles, Zig, Zigbee expansion modules, which were like 90 bucks each or something, which are now sitting there surplus to needs in the IoT drawer broken dreams. So I need to figure out, can I get a Zigbee module in, uh, in the US now? Or if not, can I wait for that? Or can I wait for Matter? Because the problem I'm finding at the moment is that it is laggy and it is cloud dependent to unlock with the Wi-Fi one. Now, what I mean by that, I probably can't hear it from here. Uh, let's just see what it looks like. If I go into HomeKit, we'll talk about how I got that all set up in just a second. And I look at this, we've got, uh, we've got the living room front door. It just says updating, updating. Front gate, updating. Why are they still just updating? I don't know why they're still just updating. Is it laggy cloud? Well then if I go into Home Assistant, which is where I put things in the first place, and I go into one of my dashboards just here, and I'll have that listed under my essentials. It says front, oh, front door not available, front gate <laughs> not available. <laughs> I think it's a cloud thing, I don't know. So I'm not real happy with that piece. When it works, it's beautiful. So the, the, the way we sort of settle this up is there is an August integration for Home Assistant. The August integration works with the AL locks. That exposes them in HA. Now we can then use what is a Home Bridge or whatever the integration is, which can then expose Home Assistant entities back to Home Kit in Apple, which means that I can ask the lady on my watch, we all know her name, but if I say her name, she starts listening, to do things like unlock the front door or we've got one on the gate and then one on the house so when we're walking home i can just put, pick the watch up and go you know hey what's your name unlock the house which is great and then she unlocks the house and you walk in and the doors are automatically open when you close the door it's so easy just to turn the lock anyway there's not a lot of value there but the value is just being able to walk home and as you're approaching the door you know it might be when you're 50 meters away or something so it's plenty of time if it is a bit laggy when it works, it works beautifully. When it looks like this right now, where it's offline, it is a pain in the ass. And it's one of those things where you want to be, 
you want to be dependent on it because it's a, it's a great implementation, but you've got to be able to trust it. And at the moment, I just don't trust it. So my feeling is it's, it's related to the Wi-Fi situation. Um, I think there was a question earlier on about HomeKey. Now, HomeKey is Apple's native implementation, different to HomeKit. HomeKit is the one that surfaces all your IoT things in the one sort of dashboard. So, you know, if, if I look at my panel, looks a little bit like this, where I've got, you know, the carport door, which is open, the awning, which is closed, a, a whole bunch of other things, many of which are surfaced directly from Home Assistant back into here. That's HomeKit. HomeKey works as a digital key. It uses, I believe, NFC, so it needs to use either, either your phone or your watch, and you can just go and like literally tap it on the door lock and the thing unlocks. That to me is probably gonna be the best possible experience, particularly if it works properly in terms of like granting family and friends and things access as well. I'd, I'd love for the kids, for example, to be able to just tap the watch or the phone. So if they come home with friends, the friends aren't seeing the pin. At the moment, the friends will see their pin. There are very, very few devices that support HomeKey. It only launched, I think, pretty much late last year. Uh, of the devices that did support it, a bunch of the ones I looked at were absolute crap in terms of their, their quality or security. Things like the, ah, oh, geez, I forget the name of it now. But there's one where the battery sits inside the, the, the deadbolt, which seems like a good idea. But then you look at Lockpicking Lawyer, and it was... <laughs> Lockpicking lawyer is not my threat actor, right? Just to be clear, I'm not worried about him, I'm just worried about the everyday kids. But it was just, it was so egregiously bad level. Thank you, Chris. It's the level of, it was so egregiously bad that you just kind of go, like, surely this can't be true. And I contacted level and I said, look, you know, this looks really bad. Do you have plans to, to address it? You know, when do you think this is going to be done? And I just got such a, such a wishy-washy Chewbacca defense deflective response that I just went, I, I really don't like this company very much at the moment. I just, I fundamentally don't like the way they've responded. So there's that. Uh, Akira actually had a really neat looking lock that did support home key, but it's a big unit. And one of the things I'm worried about, like we've got this, particularly the front door, the gate slowly too, at the door is massive and it's aluminium and we paid a lot of money for this door and I don't want to go drilling holes or making marks and things on the door in places where the door which will be there probably for decades then becomes shaped by the technology which might only be there for a year or two each time. So one of the things the Yale had going for it is such a small form factor that if we do want to replace it with something else later on that the likelihood of it damaging the door in visible ways is much, much, much lower than, say, the Akira. So, I feel, I think the term I've used before, I feel like we got the least bad IoT locks. <laughs> That's, it's just like I got the least bad printer recently. It's like, they're all shit to one degree or another, but this one was the least shit out of all of them. Chris says, the company I have worked for the past five years is the number one consumer of Yale locks. We do smart locks and thermostats and sensors in multifamily apartments across the US. So he says, I've thoroughly enjoyed your sharing your journey. Uh, I share so much of your pain. Incidentally, the reason I'm reading all these back, I know you watching the live stream now can see this. 
but this goes into a podcast, people listen to it in the car. It's a little bit like when there's an audience member at a live talk who asks you a question and the, the group of people around them can hear it, but everybody else can't. So apologies if this sounds a little bit redundant for everyone here, but it's good narrative. Chris says, very interested in HomeKey. I remember you saying that for the wallet implementation, that's the larger reason you went with that lock. Uh, look, I'd, I'd, I'd uh, love to have HomeKey, and I will have HomeKey. And I suspect, just knowing that it needs NFC, I, I don't think the lock, in fact, I can see a lock right there. It's just there <laughs> in the video, where is it, back to front. Uh, I suspect that that is not that lock itself is not going to support home key because it needs NFC. I don't think it's just a module that that's communication over wireless protocol that you can just pop in and out. So that's probably not going to be the one. But I imagine Yale. I mean, they're they're a classic lock maker. They're a, a big name in locks. Uh, at some point, them or Asoy Abley, I always have trouble pronouncing the name, the parent company who makes them will do a HomeKit one. Now, maybe it'll be later this year or next year, who knows? But if I can get this right with the right expansion module, if I can get a good Zigbee one or even a good Matter one, I feel like we're going to be 90% of the way there. And then the last 10% is that home key implementation. And sooner or later, that'll happen. Uh, now, Chris said, uh, did I say Akira? Yes, but you spelled Akira, A-C-A-R-A. It's A-Q-A-R-A. And if you look for uh, Akira Home Key, you'll, you'll find it really quickly. It's, it's a big black unit. It's got a keypad on it. It's a very sort of long piece of kit. It, it looks really cool, but it's, it's big. One of the things I like about our door at the moment is that there's not really, there's nothing there except for a big ass handle and the, the Yale lock. And once that deadbolt is unlocked, then we just push or pull the door. There's no other latch, there's no other thing to turn or move. It's, it, it's beautiful and it's, it's such an impactful door. Like people walk through and they just say, whoa, <laughs> that's, that's really, really cool. And I don't want to mess it up by putting you know, ugly IoT stuff there. Chris says, Schlage is the other one I've seen. Uh, haven't heard whether you just said. Uh, I, I did notice that Schlage do a home key one. To, to me, it was aesthetically not a very good looking lock. It looked a lot more like a classic kind of, you know, Victorian house <laughs> kind of door lock. I just didn't like the look of it. So, and, and this is the thing, because it is an aesthetic, aesthetic decision uh, as well as a functional decision. Pat's uh, just jumped in. Love the garage <laughs> art studio. Yeah, it is looking really cool. I'm very, very happy with it. What's really nice about it is you can see if just in the background there, the window there, uh, normally we'd be walking backwards and forwards there the whole time. So I just said to Charlotte, like, you don't need to like keep out of the frame, but like just don't walk upstairs naked or something like that. Or be good for viewership, let's be honest. But you know, like that is now a window into the house. And what I like about this space here is that people would be, be sort of saying, look, it's a garage, it's a garage, but it, it now feels like another room in the house. And it's out of frame, but just over this side, and, and like Richard's been in our house before, so maybe you can sort of picture it, but just over the other side of the bar is a sliding door into, into a, the media room where we've, got a, uh, we've now got a projector and a big screen and everything. And we made the door larger to keep it open, to keep all of this space open. And this is now more like a room that we park cars in. Uh, I put Sonos and so on in the roof. Uh, our daughter's having a birthday party next month and all her friends will have like tents and things in here. 
it's, it's just become like a really, really cool room. There's other stuff to be done yet. The garage door just here, we're gonna get sprayed black at the moment. It's like a, a silver metal backing. That'll, and the reason we're doing this is that that'll then just sort of disappear. So when we walk up and down these stairs, you know, 100 times a day or whatever it is, every time you come down, the car really pops, the lights are on it in a great way, that'll disappear. Just yesterday, the frame around this window, that's <laughs> very hard to do by camera, got uh, trimmed in aluminium, so that's now a, a really nice finish. It's, it's, it's just a cool place. It's a very cool place. Bar will hopefully be finished next week. We had to put some, some glass shelves in. Uh, the LEDs look really cool. There's stone that's got to go across the bench top just there. Again, when it's done, I'll get some proper photos and share those, and it's going to look pretty, pretty epic, I think. Chris says, I thought the Assure one did it, didn't realize he didn't end up with it. So I'm not sure, Chris, when you say it, if we're talking about home key, it doesn't do home key. None of the A ones do yet. I'm sure it'll happen later on. Peter says, after hearing all the IoT lock fun, I'm glad I've waited to replace my physical lock. It's not yet ready for prime time, non-techie family members. Um, so a good mate of mine, Aaron Powell, who travels in our circles, has had very good success with his Akira locks. He's, he's very happy with the way they worked out. He got the version one Aussie ones. He's got them running, I, I think, on, on Zigbee as well. It seems like once you have the Zigbee module, you get a whole bunch of other APIs exposed that you don't with the Wi-Fi module. So for example, the ability to set a pin. Now we've got tradies that are gonna be doing some work when we're away. Uh, I've had to go and manually set up a pin so that they can get themselves in and out. Uh, when I say manually, I've had to go and get my spare iPhone that signed into the US iTunes account with the US app and then set that up. <laughs> and then I've just made it valid for the period that they're around. So to, to your point, Peter, Yes and no. <laughs> I think it's part of it a, a good in terms of prime time readiness, but it feels like very rough edges. But I also feel like we're, we're very close to those rough edges being behind us, like a this year sort of thing. If we get, um, Yale gets their act together and makes a consistent experience for everyone, that would be great. Uh, but also getting the, getting the home key support as well. Chris says, cheers Roy, appreciate the chat. My day-to-day -day is building the app that residents use to interact with their smart devices. Everything you share, frustrations and joys aligns with what I'm solving. When I started doing all the IoT stuff a couple of years ago, because COVID and we all had to find new ways of keeping ourselves amused, I, I wrote this five-part blog series. And, and what I was trying to say there is that the, the IoT has got to be usable for normal people. And obviously we've we, we got to dog food everything that we, we build here. And that means me, Charlotte, the kids have all got to live with the IoT that we put in place here. And lots of it does enrich our lives, absolutely without doubt. But lots of it also is extraordinarily frustrating and still extraordinarily rough. And particularly the UX. Now, I'll give you some good examples of this. It'll lead me into the next topic actually about Melee. Yeah, good examples of this are things like we, we got an awning out this side of the house. So, We've just had the, the shortest day of the year, one of the coldest periods of the year. But this morning by nine o'clock in the middle of winter, it was too hot to sit in the sun. So we got an awning, which is great. And the awning, once the sun goes just a little bit above the horizon, we're, we're in shade, which is, which is fantastic. It has an IoT component. Now that hub 
I've got sitting just in here is a little IoT hub inevitably relays the same sort of signals that the remote control does. There's an app. It feels like, you ever see like one of those apps from the 90s? Of course, this was pre-smartphone. <laughs> one of those apps from the 90s where this, it just, it just feels so, someone's kid designed it with crayons, right? Like this is what it feels like. It is an absolute messy, messy piece of rubbish. Fortunately, it does integrate into Home Assistant. So, you know, you get to the Home Assistant bit and, and you're fine. But, you know, when I'm talking to the company, it's like, all right, I want to understand the IoT experience. And they're like, yeah, yeah, uh, that's okay. We've got an app. You can do everything from there. And I'm like, oh, geez, not another app. Uh, and it has no, let's imagine we're not in the Home Assistant world and it's my mum and dad or something. It has no integration into, into Home Assistant, uh, Home Assistant, Home Kit for Apple. So they're in an Apple ecosystem. They can't just go into Home Kit and have the thing there, they've got to go to another app. So you're constantly opening different apps to do different things. Miele, let's talk about Miele. Holy jeez, Miele. As part of rebuilding our kitchen, we ordered many Miele things. We ordered, uh, based on popular suggestion, two dishwashers. Gosh, I'm so excited about having two dishwashers. When we're asking people, we said, you know, like, what are we, what, we're going to rebuild the kitchen, what should we do? And a bunch of people said, get two dishwashers because when one is washing, you can stack the other one and it keeps everything a lot cleaner. So, no, it actually makes a lot of sense. So, okay, we end up with two meal dishwashers. We've ended up with uh, a conventional oven, which they call, what do they call it? It's a weird name. Anyway, it's an oven. <laughs> and we've ended up with a microwave, which they call a speed oven, which can also do, um, like convent, convection, conventional, normal cooking, and a steam oven. Now, we've got those and there's a warming drawer. I don't think the warming drawer has any IoT. All the other things have IoT. The dishwasher was the first thing we set up and I've set up the conventional oven and I've set up the speed oven. But let me just talk you through some of the problems here. So this was, when did I do this? Exactly one week ago today. So. Dishwasher's plugged in. I'm like, all right, cool, let's connect this thing. <laughs> so you go in, you've got to create an account, right? So you've got to have a Miele account in the cloud so that your app can sign into that and then it can attach your products to the cloud. So you're going to create an account and right from the beginning, password. Password must be between eight and 16 characters and at least two numbers. Why at least two numbers? The following characters are permitted. And this, this is such a, such a messy, <laughs> I can't even read it because I don't know how to pronounce a lot of these characters because they're like a bunch of German ones. Okay, I guess Miele, but not the Norwegian ones. So A to Z uppercase, A to Z lowercase, and then a whole bunch of funny characters from the German alphabet, zero to nine, hash, dollar sign, percentage sign, ampersand, single, and they've listed all of these. And then they said the first character cannot be an exclamation mark or a question mark and first three characters must be different. <laughs> Not the first two or the first four, the first three. This is just stupid password complexity criteria. So, okay, whatever, we can satisfy that. Uh, and then I go through to try and create this account and it comes back and says, fault, a technical error has occurred, 400. <laughs> okay, and there's literally just an okay. So I, I can't create this account. And if I can't create the account, I can't join the appliances to the account, which doesn't exist yet, which means I can't then integrate into Home Assistant and do all the other stuff. So anyway, then I'm like, all right, well, I'll go and watch the demos or something. And it says, server maintenance. 
we're currently carrying out maintenance work on our server. Server, Melee has one server. <laughs> Therefore, some features of the app may be limited. We ask for your understanding from the 16th to the 6th, 9 p.m. to today, 11 a.m. Now, I was there after that, and it wouldn't work. Yeah, as GF has just said, password purgatory. Yes, it was absolute, it is. And what was so infuriating about it is I wasn't sure if it was a problem with the password or it wasn't clear on the freaking registration page that their server, server, was down. And I've just started a tweet thread here. I can't set up my dishwasher because I can't register in the app because the Melee server is down. It's just a photo of the dishwasher saying, waiting for app. Now, to be clear, you can use all of this in dumb format. You can just go and press the buttons on the dishwasher and everything works. You don't have to connect it to the app. If you don't connect it to the app, it works just like our last dishwasher, which was 17 years old or something by the time it met its maker. You can use it in dumb format. There was a barrage of angry people on Twitter. Oh no, right? <laughs> angry people on Twitter like, this is why you never get connected things. You know, never get a connected thing because you can never trust it. It's all dependent on the cloud. The, the thing I think Miele, they've done an absolute atrocious job of their app. But what they have done right is they haven't made the devices dependent on the IoT. The IoT, like the device does all the things it would normally do and then IoT adds to it. Painfully so, but adds to it. So anyway, I go through here. I get the dishwasher there. And then it's just, <laughs> the app is just crap because it shows a dishwasher and then there's just nothing you can do with it. And I realized later, like you have to actually start the dishwasher, get a cycle going, uh, and then you can start to get some information from it. So I did that with the dishwasher. Uh, what's the rest of this tweet thread here? Um, <laughs> it's got an auto DOS feature, auto DOS. And people are like, is that like an, like an operating system for your, for your dishwasher or is it a denial of service thing? Uh, what Melee does, which I like the idea of, and time will tell whether it's a good idea or not, is you know how you normally have like little dishwashing tablets, right? And you open the little flap and every time you wash, you put a dishwashing tablet in. They've got these discs like this, which, which are really containers with the dishwashing powder in them. And you put that in a, in a big receptacle and it takes just the amount of dosage that it needs for the wash that you're doing. So rather than every time you do a wash, it's already in there and apparently it's like once a month or something, you need to change it. And depending on the wash cycle you choose, it uses a different amount of powder. And then I was in my very, I guess, mechanical mind, I'm thinking, well, it's actually kind of clever because you could drip feed the powder as well. You know, at the moment, like the little flap opens and the tablet goes in and that's it, the whole thing's there. But this could actually dose out the powder over time. So I think the theory, to my mind anyway, makes sense. Now, I got, uh, I got everything set up with the dishwasher. I get push notifications to the watch now, which is good. This is where the value is. Like people are like, why do you need a connected dishwasher? There is value in being told that the dishwasher is finished. Now with the old dishwasher, the value was, and the way I did it with the old one is I just had an IoT power monitoring switch and I could see when it stopped drawing power. And then I could add some buffer at the end because after it stopped drawing power, it needed a cooling cycle, whatever. But I could see when it was finished, so I could go and open the door and let it start to you know, dry and cool down. This one does actually pop the door after it finishes, which is cool. So it finishes, pops the door, steam and stuff comes out and it starts to cool everything down. 
But we get the alert so you know that you can go and empty the dishwasher. Um, I have also integrated into Home Assistant. There's a Miele integration there that someone has written. It's not a first party from Miele. It seems to be from someone else. You've got to go and get like a developer account and add the secret key. And it's a bit of mucking around, but you get the whole thing up and running. And then Home Assistant has the history of the dishwasher. And of course you can then do things like trigger various other stuff to happen. So previously I just had the Sonos, it would speak. Okay, the dishwasher is now finished. That's actually really handy for things like uh, the washing machine. We've got a Samsung washing machine. Their smart things ecosystem can integrate with Home Assistant. Uh, particularly having the washing machine be able to say, hey, it's just finished. You know, well, okay, you can go and hang your stuff up now. It's handy stuff. Now the dishwasher. The, the, the cycle of getting it connected, this is so ugly. <laughs> so, you open up the app and you say, you know, I want to add the dishwasher. And then on the dishwasher, you're like, I want to join it to the app. And it broadcasts its own access point. I just find this such a weird thing that a dishwasher needs to be able to broadcast an access point. Broadcast an access point, phone connects to the access point, sets up the Wi-Fi credentials, disconnects from the app, connects onto your Wi-Fi network. Your phone then drops off the dishwasher's Wi-Fi network because it's no longer broadcasting. It reconnects your home network. Now they're both on the same network. They see each other. Job done. The dishwasher, for reasons unknown, when I did this, they couldn't see each other once they both joined back onto my normal Wi-Fi network. And I'm doing this on my iPhone, and then I went to my iPad, and I opened it up, and it's like, oh, we just found a dishwasher on your network. <laughs> okay. Fair enough, whatever it takes. Would you like to connect to it? Yes. So that got working. The conventional oven, same thing again. You go through the setup process, you connect it all with the Wi-Fi and the app and everything, and then it's like, can't see it. Go to the iPad, there's a, what is it? There's an oven. Connect to the oven. The speed oven, the microwave, I can go through the connection process. I can see it on my Ubiquiti network. I can see it get an IP address. I can see it on my IoT network. On the oven itself, you can go into settings. It's got an IP. It will tell you what it is. I cannot get it to appear in the app. I, I don't know why, but I just cannot get it to appear in this app. Maybe it's something with my network configuration. I, I don't know, but I can't make it work. I haven't tried the steam oven yet. It's not installed yet. I haven't tried the second dishwasher. That's not installed yet either. But this sort of experience where, take all the Home Assistant and Raspberry Pis and geeky techie stuff out of it. This experience where I just can't even get it in the app like a normal person is just, it, it's nuts. It's absolutely infuriating. Uh, okay, <laughs> let me look at the comments. I'll talk about something else infuriating. Um, Scott says, can you operate these appliances if they're not connected to the internet or tied to an app? Yes, yeah, so I, I suspect you asked that question just before I, I explain that or you join just after. But yes, you can operate all of these as dumb appliances. They work just fine. Rob says, got app frustrations with my gym. Got a new phone and can't register with my existing account. App is behind Cloudflare and get a DNS error. Support has no idea what's going on. This makes our life better, doesn't it, Rob? That's the... Uh, <laughs> it certainly gives us purpose. Speaking of <laughs> things that we are hacking around to try and make work, uh, I will turn this around a little bit now. We have a beer fridge. In fact, there's a wine fridge and a beer fridge, and they're both just there. And 
when we sort of redid the garage, um, we wanted everything to be integrated. And as you can see from the picture there, it looks lovely. Like everything is just, it's so neat. I really, really like these neat finishes. Now you'll see that they look the same, right? The two, one fridge is here, beer fridge is there. They're almost the same. So the wine fridge has, uh, has typical sort of wooden shelves for the wine bottles. The beer fridge, which they call the beverage fridge, that's got the wire shelves. And other than that, they're pretty much identical. We got ones that uh, hinge on different sides. So between the two of them, they hinge in the middle, which was one of the ways we could guarantee it wasn't gonna hit a car. So when both the cars are in here, there's like loads and loads of clearance. Tried to get them identical. And then we had problems. <laughs> now, the problems with the beer fridge is that they've both got a light. And in the wine fridge, you can set the light to be off, which is our current state, only on when you open the door, or always on. Now, when they're on, they're really on. Like, they seriously, seriously light up. So we're like, okay, we'll just set them so they're only on when you open the door. Because otherwise, when we walk past, you're looking into this garage, and there's just like these glaring lights the whole time. So I thought, okay, got the wine fridge first, beer fridge came six weeks later or something, we'll do the same with the beer fridge. Can't. Beer fridge, you cannot set the light to only come on when you open the door. I'm like, what kind of fridge doesn't have a light that just can't? I've had the, the cheapest, nastiest fridges ever in the years gone by, and every fridge has a light that comes on when you open the door. And what's really annoying is when you look down the bottom, you can see the sensor. So there's actually a little sensor and there's obviously a little battery in the door and it's some sort of a reed switch where it's there on the wine fridge. The hole for it is there on the beer fridge, but it just doesn't exist. So that was quite frustrating and that remains an unsolved problem, short of me trying to figure out if we can replicate the same reed switch setup on each fridge. The one that really bugged me though is the beer fridge is meant to go down to three degrees. So it's got a temperature range of three to whatever. Now three, to my palate, is a great temperature for beer. I'm happy with beer at three degrees. In fact, we put champagne in there as well because I like champagne that's cold. And we could not get the fridge under seven. And the reason I know we couldn't get it under seven is because I've got IoT sensors everywhere. So I've got Acara Zigbee sensors in every fridge and every freezer. And incidentally, they work just fine at minus 20. I feel like the battery life might be a bit less, but CR2032 batteries, you just have a stash of them, no problems. So we knew exactly what temperature the fridge was and we just couldn't get it low enough. Appliance guy comes out, looks at it, they send a new fridge. And I just went, I bet you it's gonna be one of these things where you know, you'll set it to say three and then it will be seven or something like that. So, no, it sounds like the most first world of problems, but I don't want beer at seven degrees. I want it at three degrees or even less. New fridge does exactly the same thing. So what are we gonna do? Like we've, the whole idea was to get fridges that integrate and look, you know, really nice in the room. So eventually I discovered that <laughs> I went to the snowboard shop and I bought you know the hand warmers? So when it gets really, really cold, you get these hand warmers. Once you open the exposure and the oxygen move them around, they generate heat. And I stuck them on the thermostat. So I found what the thermostat was. Stuck them on the thermostat, and then the fridge temperature went way down. And it went down to like two degrees. So I was like, okay, well, the, the problem is obviously the thermostat is reading high. 
So what I've ended up discovering is the thermostat was right down the bottom. And if you take enough of the fridge apart, you see it's on a big long cable. And I've now run the thermostat right up to the top of the fridge, just under the light, where it seems to be the warmest, <laughs> the warmest spot in the fridge. And that has now successfully brought my beer temp fridges down. Beer temp fridges? Beer fridge temps down. What are we down to at the moment? Uh, all right, two degrees. Oh, I'm very happy with that. Very happy with that. But it does feel harder than what it should be. <laughs> I think on, on that, again, most first world of notes. That's probably a, a good place to wrap this up. Look, I hope you've enjoyed this one in the garage. It's been a bit of a, a, bit of a weird location. Uh, and again, as I said, I'll get, I am writing a blog series where I'm going to put lots of photos and things about the various bits and pieces we've done in the house because it is coming out uh, epically, epically, sensationally good. Next week, I'll come to you from Bangkok. Uh, mobile setup again. We'll try and make things work a little bit more <laughs> predictably and reliably than what they did today. But hey, this wasn't too bad. Thanks very much for joining. See you next week from Thailand.